Hello, and welcome to An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, a podcast from Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. My name is Phil Gursky, President of Borealis. And for today's podcast, I am very, very pleased to have with me, joining me via the wonders of the internet, a guest. And that guest is Aaron Zellen, who is a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Studies and a visiting scholar in the Department of Politics at Brandeis University, and is also the founder of a really cool website, which you, if you're interested in terrorism and more importantly, Islamist extremism, you really got to check out. And that website is jihadology.net. So J-I-H-A-D-O-L-O-G-Y.net, which is described as a primary source archive of global jihadi material. Something I've been looking at for quite some time. Because I said, it's a really good website. Check it out. So Aaron, thanks very much and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Phil. Well, first and foremost, congratulations on the publication of your new book, Your Sons at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad, which just came out from Columbia University Press. I'm, I'm going through it right now. And so having written books myself on, on terrorism, I know it's a labor of love. So uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, good to finally have it out and also hear what everybody thinks about it. Yeah, I, I've noticed on the reviews in the back, people like Thomas Heghammer and Jutta Clausen and uh, uh, J.M. Berger have, have weighed in quite positively. And I must say, I'm, I'm finding it quite fascinating so far. So I, I want to talk to you a bit about the book, but more specifically, more about Tunisia. Now, I might be wrong, Aaron, but I'm guessing that most Canadians and most Americans either couldn't find Tunisia on a map or really don't care about it. Would, would that be your assessment as well? Um. Probably, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure most Europeans would. So I'm just curious, why, why, what was it about Tunisia that grabbed your attention in the first place? And why was it you wanted to write a book more specifically about terrorism in, in Tunisia, which we'll get back to. But why Tunisia in the first place? What was it that, that, that attracted you? Yeah, so uh, in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings in 2011 um, and Tunisia's revolution in particular, uh, most people, at least based off of my understanding, viewed Tunisia as sort of this relatively secular and cosmopolitan country in comparison to other Arab states. But then within a few months of this revolution, I saw and noticed on the jihadi forums at, at the time, which is what they used before social media, uh, of this notice for this uh, event uh, for the founding of this new group called Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia. And this was in about May 2011, and I was like, huh, this is interesting. This definitely is different than what most people say in terms of uh, the country. And then that kind of just led me down this rabbit hole, and I had no idea it would become even more relevant just because you know, so many Tunisians ended up joining up with uh, the Islamic State in Syria. Uh, and so uh, as time went on, even though at first it was sort of more niche of niche topics, um, it got a little bit more relevant. That's interesting. So, you know, for my listeners that maybe couldn't find Tunisia on a map, just to recall that the so-called Arab Spring, which I think everyone's kind of heard of, this is this uh, massive set of revolutions across the Islamic world, Middle East and, and Africa, really kind of started in a very unobtrusive, not thought about part of the world. And this is back in, you know, mid-December in 2010, when a man called Mohammed Bouazizi, who basically ran a vegetable or fruit cart, had his cart confiscated and if the rumors are that i've read are correct aaron 
He was also slapped by a policewoman, which was an ultimate humiliation. So he basically set himself on fire and uh, later died, about three weeks later, died from his injuries. And this set off, this was literally, uh, literally and figuratively, the spark that lit off the, the, sort of the Arab Spring. So how is it that, as you say, looking back to 2011, looking at what's happening in Tunisia, even in Bahrain, you had the Arab Spring, you had it in Egypt, you had it in Syria. What did those events do, do you think? for the more Islamist extremist jihadi types in Tunisia at the time, because they definitely were there. You had this proto-democracy developing out of the Arab Spring. What was the impact on the local jihadis based on your analysis and on your research? Yeah, so uh, in my research and book, I talk about how it essentially helped rebuild the movement in many respects. Um, Historically, the movement was mainly based outside of Tunisia just because of the authoritarian nature of the local government. So many Tunisians were actually active and operating out in parts of Western Europe, as well as involved in uh, various jihads abroad, whether Afghanistan, Iraq, or smaller ones like in Bosnia or Somalia or Yemen. Um, And in the decade prior to the revolution, Locally, a number of people arrested, as well as some people were extradited back to Tunisia from Europe, from Turkey, from Syria, uh, and elsewhere. And as a result, you had this sort of collation of the first generation of Tunisian jihadis with the second generation of Tunisian jihadis. Um, and, and as a result of the revolution, there was this general amnesty that happened in February uh, 2011, um, which was for everybody, political prisoners, as well as these jihadists. Um, which I call sort of the original sin of the revolution, the latter part. Of course, the political prisoners definitely should have been let out. But I think uh, a lesson that should be learned, hopefully, maybe if something changes in, say, Sudan or Algeria now, that uh, you should maybe just retry these individuals within the new system instead of just letting them out. This let all these individuals that had been involved in a bunch of terrorist plots, a bunch of attacks, a bunch of foreign fighting endeavors, in the 15 to 20 to 30 years before the Tunisian revolution out back onto the streets. And that's when they created this group, Ansar al-Sharia, which was essentially a front organization for al-Qaeda. So uh, that's when they started to do outreach, proselytization, a bunch of different events and lectures, but also social services in Tunisia. Um, And because starting in October 2011, after the first um, election, put into power Anahto, which is sort of the Tunisia's version of the Muslim Brotherhood, right. uh, they um, they uh, sort of had this different approach to dealing with jihadis than your typical sort of uh, Arab authoritarian regime. Part of it was based off of their own history of being cracked down upon and feeling as if they did that, then maybe in another 15 to 20 years, then al-Qaeda would be in control of Tunisia. So they had sort of this light-touch approach, but in fact, that provided the space for these guys to recruit and grow over time uh, up until, say, August 2013, when the government eventually uh, designated them as a terrorist organization. So it took some time for the government to, as you said, in in the aftermath of the revolution. And I remember back to those days, Aaron, and I was still working in the intelligence community at that time. It really was a harbinger of hope for the Arab and Muslim world. We really thought this was going to make a difference, you know, whether it coincided with a bit with the Obama administration. But a lot of people thought, finally, the Arab world is getting democracy. Finally, the Arab world is getting representation. Finally, the Arab world is shaking off the shackles of dictatorship. So in your analysis, you found that, in fact, 
Tunisia had been a significant source of jihadis in a variety of jihads around the world, including Afghanistan, including Bosnia. And yet we know from what we've been told that, in fact, Tunisia ended up having one of the highest number of fighters, the so-called foreign fighter phenomenon we talk about, that went to to fight for Islamic State. So I've seen estimates as high as 6,000 Tunisians went to fight with Islamic State. Uh, I was in Tunisia in Tunis a couple of years ago and I spoke to a local official and he said the situation is actually worse than that. He says not only did we have thousands that went to join Islamic State, but and the figure he gave me was, he says, we, we identified and stopped 21,000 from going by you know confiscating passports or whatever kind of thing. So why is it, do you think, that Tunisia of all places, given their history in jihad, when Islamic State creates the fake caliphate in the in the summer of 2014, what was it about ISIS, you think, that was the large, attractive, sort of the attractive smell, you will, for Tunisia's jihadis to flock there en masse? Part of it related to sort of the historical connections between uh, Tunisians involved in the jihadi movement and ISIS. So a number of key leaders in the movement had previously joined up with al-Qaeda in Iraq in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion in 2003. Uh, At the time, they weren't necessarily like uh, important leaders in the group. But over time, through experience, they became more relevant. Um, People like uh, Bubakar al-Hakim or Tariq al-Harzi Um, And as a result, by the time we got around to sort of the 2013-14 timeframe, when ISIS was sort of resurging, as well as the fact that there was this crackdown in Tunisia on the local movement, um, these guys were able to connect those in Tunisia to those that were in Iraq and Syria. Um, So, for example, the head of ISIS's uh, foreign fighter recruitment was actually the Tunisian Tariq al-Harzi from like 2007-8 time period until he was killed in a U.S. drone strike in 2015 in Syria. So they're highly connected to this. Then um, there was also the fact that because there is this ability to operate openly within Tunisia, there was this larger uh, population of individuals that could then potentially go. And the fact that the crackdown in Tunisia sort of coincided with the return of ISIS becoming more relevant again in that same uh, year in 2013 and 14 or so, um, these individuals in Tunisia were like, well, I don't want to get arrested here. Um, I'm just going to go abroad. And at first, a number of them went to Libya first. uh, And then from Libya, they went into Syria. Um, So in many ways, a lot of it had to do with the particular conditions related to Tunisia, as well as sort of the historical connections and networks that these guys had. And I think that's one of the most important takeaways, at least from the book. And I think it's underrated when people talk about this is just all these personal connections that individuals have over time and how that, even though individual are sort of conflicts and groups might change names or it might go from, you know, Iraq to Somalia to Algeria to Bosnia to Afghanistan and back and forth in terms of what's the most important conflict zone. Um, but these are the same individuals. They just change the focus um, to whatever is relevant at that point. Um, and, and so because of that, uh, they're uh, easily able to then join up. And just the fact that it was easy to get to Turkey as well um, in terms of flight. Um, and because the Tunisian government had sort of this light touch approach related to it, they didn't really stop people uh, going until later in 2000, until sort of the spring and summer of 2014. Um, and actually, based off of my own research, the number of people that they stopped um, as of now got all the way up to 30 or yeah, no, it was 27,000 people they stopped and about 3,000 that actually made it to 
uh, Iraq and Syria, and then another about 1,500 that ended up going to Libya. Um, so it's interesting because uh, when you look at the broader population, it's still not that many individuals. I mean, if, uh, say, Egypt or Saudi Arabia had the open conditions that Tunisia did, I would think that they would have tens of thousands of individuals. So even if, comparatively speaking, in this context, it seems like a lot, I think it's also important to note that it's not like, uh, you know, a huge amount in the way that you would see with probably other Arab states. You, you raised the really important point about networking, and I think we forget that sometimes, right? We think these people sort of randomly show up and say, hi, I'm here. When in actual fact, we've learned this lesson before, right? In the aftermath of sort of the Afghan jihad after the, the Soviets pulled out in 89, of course, we had an outflux into, into, into the Balkans. We had an outflux into other parts of the world. So it should surprise no one that, in fact, networking is an important thing. And as you say, the fact that the Tunisian government was cracking down almost led to the impetus to say, well, if I stick around here, I'm going to get arrested. I might as well go somewhere else. So if I can, I'm not sure if you can answer this question, Aaron, but how would you rate Tunisia? How is it doing on a counterterrorism front? So we've seen they, they have they've prevented people from leaving. They haven't had a great number of attacks in Tunisia. They've had a couple significant ones over the last few years. How, what kind of rating would you give the Tunisian security service, Tunisian law enforcement, and the general Tunisian counterterrorism effort to date? I think now compared to, say, six, seven, eight years ago, it's a lot better. Um, probably B plus, maybe A minus if I'm being generous right now. Um, just because their learning curve, they've done a lot in just the past four or five years since those large-scale attacks you mentioned, the one at the National Museum mm-hmm. in March 2015, yeah, in Bardo, the Sioux Beach attack in June 2015, yes. uh, as well as the failed takeover of the city of Bin Gardan, which is close to the Libyan border in March 2016. And in many respects, the um, latter event was sort of this turning point um, because Uh, the Tunisian National Guard and army was able to push ISIS out from being able to take over their territory because the Islamic State in Libya was attempting to essentially do what they did in Iraq and Syria, which was, you know, break the border essentially um, and have this territory that spanned the Libyan-Tunisian border. But they failed in part because the local civilians actually assisted um, the National Guard and army and pushed them back. And that provided a lot of legitimacy to then do other types of work in terms of bolstering their military capabilities Um, in sort of the mountainous areas where there are cells of both AQIM and ISIS near the Algerian border on the other side of the country, as well as the various um, uh, networks related to law enforcement approaches. Um, And part of that is helped in in part by um, sort of training by the U.S., by the EU, um, and others um, in trying to make them smarter about this and not just be like, all right, well, uh, your cousin got uh, involved in this. I'm going to arrest you too, but more discriminate. So they've actually gotten a lot smarter with this type of activity. Um, and they've been able to deter sort of the insurgent capacities in the mountainous areas near Algeria. The fact that ISIS in Libya also has been, um, you know, pushed back um, and been unable to sort of regenerate itself in the same way we saw, um, say, with uh, uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria earlier this decade. Um, it's provided the space for Tunisia to do a lot of work, and they've been implementing things beyond just uh, sort of the kinetic and law enforcement approach, too. They've started implementing uh, local sanctions uh, and designation regime, so individuals uh, that are involved in these things, their bank accounts will be frozen, any uh, like real estate assets, 
Um, and so they've gotten stronger on the financial front. And now they're trying to do more in terms of things on the front end and back end in terms of prevention, as well as the whole idea of reintegration and rehabilitation. Of course, it's sort of in the early stages. And, and obviously, people are slightly skeptical of how well these things will go. Um, but they have been putting into place some uh, contracts to local associations because the one nice thing about Tunisia is that it is a democracy. Um, so it is a bit more dynamic than these authoritarian places where they allow the citizens to take part in this um, and therefore not necessarily worry that there'll be a threat to their power being involved in these types of activities. So they've also had a series of workshops with local associations, uh, local politicians, uh, local uh, religious leaders, social workers, psychologists, and every governorate. So um, we'll have a better idea, I think, in more of the mid to longer term, maybe five to 10 years, how successful these types of things are. Um, and they're already implementing also a pilot program within the prison system, though there are still concerns about the prison system, which is why I'm not giving them sort of an A, mm -hmm. um, uh, is because there's still reports of torture, as well as the fact that you have jihadis um, congregating alongside petty criminals. And then the fact that, you you know, if somebody is trying to do this rehabilitation, reintegration, there's still this potential for peer pressure uh, by those who are still true believers um, in the same way you see gang dynamics in prisons in, say, the United States. So um, it's not necessarily the best, but I think compared to a lot of other countries, they're being relatively uh, proactive on this and at least trying things out. Um, and the fact is, is that a thousand people from uh, Iraq and Syria have already returned and you haven't really seen um, any large scale plots or attacks in the last few years, which suggests that they're really doing a good job in terms of also reviewing and assessing who these people are, because not all of the 1,000 have been put into prison. Um, uh, you know, part of it too is the fact that some of these individuals have become disillusioned by what they saw in Syria as well. Um, but I think that, you know, especially in the last three to four years, Tunisia's really um, gone on the right track. And at least for me, as somebody that's been to Tunisia for many times and has uh, become to have a lot of Tunisian friends, it's, it's, it's good and exciting to see. I hope that they can continue this um, uh, and, and continue to be successful because I think that they can be a great ally to both the U.S., Canada, and Europe in this regard because they are an actual democracy unlike the other Arab states. You make some good points. And I was going to ask you about the returnee problem, and you've just sort of answered it, that in fact, uh, uppers of a 1,000 have returned. And to the best of my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not been a single attack that has been attributed to a returnee. And of course, you know, Thomas Heckhammer's work looking at foreign fighters historically, some work by David Mallet as well, we know that, in fact, a very small percentage of returnees actually take part in acts of terrorism. This is not helping a lot of states make policy. Though a lot of the states, including my own, uh, are basically saying they want nothing to do with returnees. In fact, we're not going out of our way to get them back here. And there's a lot of concern about, you know, can you actually de-radicalize? Can you actually reintegrate? I don't disagree with you that a lot of these guys will be disillusioned. The problem being figuring out which guys are, are really being honest about it and which guys are not. So, it, it, I mean, it's a positive sign to see that Tunisia is doing very well. But, you know, when you're answering that last question, uh, Aaron, you, you talked a little bit about the neighborhood. Now, Tunis Tunisia is a democracy. It's one of the rare ones in, the, in, in, in MENA, Middle East, North Africa. But it lives in an awful shitty neighborhood. Uh, Libya is, depending on what day of the week, is either imploding or not imploding. Of course, the Turks are now sending mercenaries that may, in fact, have been former terrorists to fight. Russia's involved, UAE's involved, Egypt's involved. Everyone's got a dog in, in the fight in Libya. So Libya is not stable. Algeria is you know, 
doing fairly well, but they've got their own problems. And of course, there's the entire Sahel region, which we're talking an awful lot about. You know, the United States has troops there. Canada has troops there trying to help local forces dealing with Al-Qaeda-linked groups uh, like, like the JNIM and, and Islamic State-linked groups and independent groups. So the fact that Tunisia lives in a lousy part of the world, put on your, your negative hat now for a second. What do you think is the so the immediate risk for Tunisia, which is done, as you said, and I don't disagree with you, fairly well to date, is the risk of sort of a bleed-through from what's happening, particularly in Libya, to a lesser extent from Algeria and the other parts of the Sahel? Luckily for Tunisia, uh, in terms of the Islamic State in Libya, they haven't really been that active. Um, their last claimed attack, at least in Libya, was in June 2019. So a lot of the U.S. airstrike campaign has been able to degrade a lot of the ability of ISIS in Libya, which was the largest threat to Tunisia in many ways because those large-scale attacks there that I mentioned were actually planned um, and the people trained in Libya for it. So in many ways, they're external operations whereas uh, the networks in the mountains close to the Algerian border have never been able to conduct the same type of large-scale attacks on civilians and have mainly both groups, ISIS and al-Qaeda in that area near Algeria, just focused on the local security forces and police. Um, Though there are Tunisians that do fight with uh, AQIM or JNM in the Malian and uh, Nigerian region, there's not that many, from my understanding, there's upwards up to 50, um, but some have died in the past year. Um, so it's definitely a possibility that they could be used in some future way to try and sneak into the territory and do something. But the U.S. has also been involved with Tunisia in terms of tracking the border security, whether it's helping build a better architecture on the border with fencing as well as moats. Um, while also um, having uh, drones fly over in terms of for surveillance, not armed drones. So there's that aspect that helps. But the thing that worries me the most is more related to the population that's imprisoned or in the camps of northeast Syria, even if it's not completely near Tunisia. But these are sort of the most hardcore of the hardcore that are still involved. And because of the fact that the situation is complicated in in relation to the SDF there and the Kurds and the fact that it's not internationally recognized as its own territory and they're non-state actors, um, has made it difficult to sort of deal with this population. And there's a couple hundred Tunisians that are still there. And, you know, at least for me, I worry that we, we could see a scenario like we saw earlier this decade um, with the Islamic State when they are doing prison breaks and letting people out um, in 2012 to 14 time frame. Um, and that was in Iraq in particular, but this could happen again if we just allow these things to play out and the fact that IS is trying to build themselves back up again, especially in uh, the Deir Azor uh, region mm-hmm. just south of where a lot of these people are housed in prisons or in camps. And what that could then mean in terms of Uh, activities in Iraq and Syria again, or sending people back to Libya or Tunisia to try and restart a terror campaign. So for me, even um, though uh, there are, you know, wars and fighting still going on in in, in Libya, as well as what's going on south to them, uh, more in Mali and Niger, I still worry the most about uh, those that could potentially be reactivated in the future um, that are imprisoned or in uh, IDP camps in in northeast syria right now i have to say aaron 
I have rarely talked to somebody about terrorism and more specifically about Islamist extremism and come away feeling cautiously optimistic. So to, even with that little bit of uh, negative thing at the <laughs> end with the Tunisians stuck in camps and what's going to happen to them, and I agree, this is a, an international mess that, that none of us have figured out what to deal with. It seems that you know the one bright spot on the horizon is Tunisia. And I find that fascinating because the one bright spot on the, on the horizon of all these the countries that went through the so-called Arab Spring remains Tunisia. As, as you know, it's the only real democracy still all these years later. So you may have achieved just about the impossible and helped me <laughs> to have an actual, not completely, oh, whoa, the world is ending look on, on jihadist extremism in North Africa. So congratulations for doing that. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me. I just wrote the book about it. But I, I will give a lot of credit to the Tunisians because, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, in the beginning of the uprising and aftermath of the revolution, especially from 2011 to 14, things were not looking so great. So I, I you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the Tunisians in turning things around and taking it seriously and doing it in a methodical manner and sort of slowly degrading things, but also securing themselves. And now hopefully, you know, even though there's still a lot of uh, grappling in any democracy between the various political parties, they can maybe improve the lives of the people, which is the original reason why they got to the streets, because the economy is still not doing too well. But at least on the security front, it's it's probably now the best it's been since the revolution. Um, and, and hopefully, at least, they'll continue forward. But as we know, with things in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, it could potentially change depending on new dynamics that could unfold. Absolutely. I don't have nearly your experience. I only have the one visit to Tunisia, and I went there after I retired from the security service. But I must say I came away with a very positive view of Tunisian society. Now, again, very small exposure to it, but I agree with you that uh, the Tunisians as a people deserve this. They deserve a democracy. They deserve a good life. So it looks like, yes, yeah, it's, it's the one shining example. So now that the book's been published, and it, I understand it was a, a long labor of love, can I just ask you to maybe, you know, what are you working on now or what are, what are your future projects looking like? Um, For now, it's just uh, promoting the book on podcasts like this uh, or doing different book events. But also, I'm just paying attention mainly to what the Islamic state is doing in Iraq and Syria to sort of test and see if they are coming back, if they're not, what this means, how how what they're doing now is similar or different to what they attempted to do sort of when they tried to come back uh, at the beginning of uh, last decade. Um, so there's more of a focus on uh, Syria again right now, and at least the immediate future, but who knows what will happen um, and what might uh, spark my interest in the same way that the Tunisia jihadi movement did. Well, again, I, I, congratulations on the book. It, uh, I, like I said, I'm, I'm reading it right now. I, I wish you all the best in the book tours. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Phil. So that's the end of this podcast. And again, I want to thank Aaron for being on it. If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, on Twitter at borealisaves, on LinkedIn, or on Facebook. If you want to look at all the material available on my website, you can subscribe for free. Just go to www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Go to the subscribe button, put in your information, and you can get all the all the, the data, all the podcasts, all the blogs, all the media interviews, free of charge to your inbox every day. I look forward to hearing from you. Tell me what you thought about my interview with Aaron or suggest topics for future podcasts or blogs. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.